as to the approximate date of um, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. This is a little history lesson. 26 A.D. Pardon? 26 A.D. Okay, try again. 30. A little bit more. Um, it was on a feast? It was about 33, it's spelled. Uh, Harold Horner wrote a book on chronological aspects of uh, Christ's life. He has a very significant chapter in there on the 70th week of uh, Daniel's prophecy in 70 weeks. Um, We're going back to Sunday school last Sunday. What part of the metallic image were we looking at last week? Iron mixed with clay. Yeah, the, yeah, the feet, the feet, legs, feet, and the toes. Um, and what what part of that metallic I- image, uh, the fourth part of the ma- metallic, I- what what uh, nation uh, is it felt that represented? Rome. Rome. Thirty-three A.D. Anybody know historically what happened ten, ten years later? It was forty-three A.D. Forty-three A.D. Right? Any, 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 anybody? <laughs> we have two Dallas graduates. Well, you, you wouldn't. Uh, what happened was. Um, Great Britain was, well, it wasn't called Great Britain, but England, Britain, was invaded by the Romans in 43 A.D. 43 A.D. Now, uh, if you want to know what Rome was like and the severity of it, go out, you can go out and look at YouTube and type in uh, Bettany Hughes, B-E-T-T-A-N-Y, Hughes, or you can just put in Hughes and put in uh, Britain. And she has done a three-part, 45 minutes each, of the Roman invasion of Britain, and it really shows you the, uh, the character and the ruthlessness of the Romans. And uh, 40,000 of them invaded. I, I was interested in it, of course, because of uh, the uh, that, that fourth part of the metallic image. So if you, uh, I'll tell you it's really it's really enlightening. Um, so much for Sunday school. <laughs> Let's shift gears here and uh, get to Luke. Um, Luke 6, 1 through 19, if you turn there. Whereabouts in Jesus' ministry is this taking place? Luke 6, 1 through 19. Anybody know what this part is called? Well, let's give you some help. 
Now, I've got 15 copies of these in uh, on the good photographic paper, and I think there's, uh, I think if you need more than one, I made some made some on plain paper, and we we'll put those out here for you after. So if you want more than one, uh, I think there's enough for every soul present anyway. So uh, there's 15 on good photographic paper. All right. So we have the major stages, and you can see where they are uh, and, and how it fits. But that doesn't tell us, that does not tell us where Luke fits. So we'll give you something else before Jim, oh, Jim already sat down. <laughs> Here's something that will show you where all of these stages fit in regard to the <coughs> the various chapters in the Gospels. So you go over to the uh, Luke column. There's four columns there. The Luke column. And you scan down the Luke column. And you find where we are. Where are we in in chapters what? Four through nine. Four through nine. And that's part of what? The great Galilean ministry. So you can refer back there to uh, the other. All right. So we see that that's part of the great Galilean ministry. So let's look now, since uh, Jim has sat down and is now and is nice and comfortable. We'll get him back up once more. <laughs> this is a this is a graphic chart of the book of Luke. Now we're just doing this because it's important to locate and understand where these events take place. Uh, in relation to the overall perspective. Let me give you an example. Um, as many of you know, Greg Matson uh, stays with us, lives in our basement. He lives in my, uh, my oldest daughter's old bedroom down in the basement. Has a beautiful orange shag carpet and uh, all bookcases all around. She had it all filled with her books and she had a lot of books. I don't know where she got that tendency. <laughs> but anyway, I got my books in there now. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I would go down to her room sometimes and she had it decorated so pretty. And, and uh, anyway, Greg stays there now. I'll tell you, the hardest part I had about the girls leaving, especially with Jana growing up, and we took Jana up to uh, 
uh, up to Trinity Western University when she had graduated from high school, and she started up there. And we took her up there and unloaded her stuff and took her up to this room, this, this second-floor-level postage stamp room that she was going to share with another gal. It was just a just an incredible contrast to to the this beautiful bedroom that she had there. And uh, anyway, when I left and was reflecting on that and everything, it just uh, I could barely contain myself as we drove out of the driveway of TWU and uh, just with tears because here was a passage that she was growing up and leaving the nest. But anyway, that's where Greg stays now <laughs> in a recliner down there. And Greg has uh, went and talked to uh, a relative and this relative uh, is a messianic believer. And he says that Christians need to keep Torah. Every single element in the Torah they need to keep. And if they don't, a Christian that doesn't keep what Torah says is in sin. And uh, anyway, so we gave Greg some books to look at and and then the the other night he uh, to to show the place of the law and the Christian. Anyway, then the other night he had um, he had a he had to teach a Sunday school class, and it was on the parable of the sower and the seed. Now the sower and the seed we'll get to later in the. Um, in Luke, but the importance of the sower and the seed is if you don't understand where that story fit or where that parable fits in relation to uh, what's happening overall in the book, you you really can come to some wrong conclusions in regard to it. Um, but if you follow along um, in uh, particularly in Matthew's gospel, you would see in Matthew chapters one through twelve, Jesus has presents presented himself to Israel as her Messiah. In the twelfth chapter and an official delegation is sent by the religious leaders from where? Jerusalem. To inspect his claims. And their conclusion is, he is a demon from hell. Matthew 12, 24. So the question arises, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, how do you explain his rejection by his own people? And the parables of Matthew 13 seem to be given to answer this question. And the very first parable is the parable of the sower and seed. 
Moreover, I believe that he's telling his disciples, this is, this is what you're going to see as you sow the word. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see these different responses. And the parable is really told for their perspective and for their insight. And I'll tell you, having ministered the word and and watched Christians and their lives, (laughs) the parable hits, hits the nail on the head. The primary purpose of the parable is not to tell you who is saved and who is lost. Although I think there are more that are saved than is generally conceded, especially if you read Reformed literature, they'll tell you that the only ones that are saved are are the ones who bear fruit. Well, anyway, um, we gave Greg some material on that. So if you... Uh, sometime later, um, after I'd given him four articles on it, he um, he says, you know, I think that really the purpose of the parable is fruitfulness. Well, if the purpose of the parable is fruitfulness, then who's saved? It's only the fourth one, those that bear fruit. Now, if you if you look carefully at the parable, there's germination that takes place in two of the others specifically. But that's not the point. The point is he is telling the disciples, this is what you're going to see when you when you sow the word. You're going to see these different responses. You're going to see this happen. And if you read it from that perspective, it really clicks and makes a lot of sense. So that the context is really important. So where are we? We're in the great Galilean ministry. Now you see in that that chart on on Luke, it's uh, in the second column, the great Galilean ministry, chapters four through nine, four fourteen through nine. So that's where we are. Um, so let's look over there at where we are. Um, fact, let me see if I can get these notes up here. Um, Jim, would you read verses uh, 1 through 5? Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. And I think in Mark's Gospel it says, And the Sabbath was made for man, 
not uh, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, so um, so the well let let, let me share with this uh, this with you what they um, they felt was going on. He says, uh, the Pharisees would find in the plucking of the ears a breach of the regulation which forbade reaping and in the rubbing in their hands that which prohibited threshing. Throwing away the husks probably represented winnowing. Well, eating showed that they had prepared food. Thus, four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. <laughs> so what, what, what were the Pharisees? What, what were they doing? What had, and, and we see this in Christendom as well in, in many quarters. In fact, Jim was just sharing with me how... Uh, just a few moments ago, how he visited a church and the pastor said there was no ten toes and the scripture didn't say so, that, that there was. And Jim went back and looked and sure enough, there was. <laughs> it does refer. So it, it, it's easy. But what was their mistake? What was their mistake? They were majoring in minors. They were they were overlaying the word of God with what? What do we call it? The word starts with T. Tradition. 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 Okay. And boy, they've got a they've got a wide written tradition in their literature. So anyway, in their literature, what's what's involved is four breaches of the Sabbath and one mouthful. Um Keeping a balance, not majoring in the minors. Uh, I need that. We all need that. Um, I think it's so, someone has said that hobby horses are the most expensive horses of all. And we can all get off on hobby horses. Uh, now, if we've got good, solid grounded uh, reasons for what we believe um, mm -hmm. that's that's what we need to keep to um, I found this interesting comment by a Southern Baptist Greek theologian by the name of uh, A.T. Robertson and Robertson uh, could, it could only be a Baptist that could come up with a with a phrase like this he says uh, that Jesus' response to them is, and he came to their uh, their defense, and he he answered them by pointing out uh, that what they did was was perfectly legal, and there was precedent for it in the Old Testament, and you can read about that in First Samuel uh, chapter one if you've got a cross reference that that that's where. It is referred to. You want something to chew on with regard to this? Who does the text say uh, 
who does the text say? Um, well, let me get back up where we are. Well, it's in, it's it's in one of the other it's in one of the go- the other gospels, not in not in. Um, Not in Luke, but in Luke in Mark uh, 2:26, it says how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest. Well, Abiathar wasn't the high priest then. Who was? Go back and look that up, and then you can chew on that and and figure out what the answer to that is. And it's a it's pretty pretty easy to uh, figure out. But that, that's something for you to chew on anyway because Abiathar was not um, the high priest then. But it's, uh, it's not a contradiction. So, um, but there is an explanation for it. But we'll need to march on here. Okay, now, he makes a, a, a pretty amazing assertion with regard to himself. Here at the end of verse verse 5, he says, uh, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. That says a lot, isn't it? It's a pretty strong assertion with regard to himself. And I take it, and most evangelical commentators understand the Son of Man as referring to himself, and that's why... On your chart, we've got as the key thing the Son of Man, Jesus represented as the Son of Man. Um, but he answers them, and uh, A.T. Robertson writes this interesting sentence. He says, It was an overwhelming and crushing reply to these pettifogging ceremonialists <laughs> to which they could not reply, but which increased their anger. I thought that phrase, pettifogging ceremonialists, was pretty good with regard to to a description of them. Take a, take a Baptist to come up with something like that. Um, let's uh, come down to the next section. And verse um, start with verse um, six, and um, Dave, if you got something open there, okay, go. Which verse? Uh, verses uh, start at verse six and. Go on down to through verse 11, 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man there, whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? 
to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, all he said was stretch out. Uh, and after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another as to what they might do about Jesus. So they were upset because he did something on the Sabbath. How would you like to have lived in the midst of those circumstances and go to the synagogue and have things like this upheld? Now, Jesus in this passage, uh, he doesn't envisage the possibility of neutrality. He'll recognize no alternative to the doing of good except the doing of evil. The refusal to save life is tantamount to the taking of it. There's no middle course as far as he's concerned. The man before him was leading an impaired life. To do nothing on the Sabbath, as far as Christ was concerned, was to destroy life. And Jesus came to save. And he tells the man to do what? Reach out your hand. Reach out your hand. And it was made whole, just like the other one. The text, uh, the text tells us. If you look this up in uh, a harmony, the Gospels. And. Uh, One commentator says, once more we find him clearing the day of God from the rubbish of human traditions and placing its requirements on the right foundation. So, now uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, what was their response was it an assiduous, assiduous response or an insidious response? I only know one of those words. <laughs> <laughs> well, an assiduous response, theoretically, is what you would find on the part of a doctor at a bedside at a hospital. Doctors don't make house calls anymore, so it's not by... So anyway, but an insidious response is a response on their part, an insidious response. And what was it? They were filled with what? Rage. Rage. Very intense word. And so, what does Jesus do next? Uh, sometime, some days later, he uh, he knew what their thoughts were and he he, uh, he, we read what the next response is. Um, and uh, let's see, let's, um, starting at verse 12. Uh, Connie, do you want to read verses 12 through uh, 19? Okay. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. 
and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bar Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he, he descended with them and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem in the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Okay. So he, he goes up into a mountain after these incidents and incidents like them, and he prays. <coughs> Did he pray till midnight? Prayed all night. I, I pray during the night. Every time I wake up, I either meditate on some aspect of Romans 8 or on um, I pray for different needs of people. One of the things I've been really concerned with and praying for is one of the fellows in our Tuesday evening study group is on a mission trip with uh, church partnership evangelism down in, in Argentina. Goes at his own expense every time something like this comes up, pays for his own way down there and uh, here, there, and everywhere. And he's been all over the world, let me tell you. And uh, so... I've been praying for um, Roger, particularly and especially, and uh, for some of you, for Pat. We've been praying for Pat, and uh, so and Bob Dickinson, and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so. Anyway, um, so he prays, and what's he do? And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So he called the disciples. So, what what is the meaning of disciple? Learner. A learner. It's a learner. It's uh, different than a student. It, it's it's more intense than a student. It, it usually involves uh, a person uh, affixing himself uh, to a teacher. And um, so he called these people that had, uh, from this group, that had, had uh, from this pool, so to speak, of disciples. And from the twelve, he also named apostles. Now, all apostles were disciples. They were learners. But not all disciples were apostles, obviously. So the reverse is not, not true. And who, who heads the list in all of the lists of the apostles? Simon. Pardon? Simon. Simon. Peter. And who ends the list? Judas. Judas. 
Now, listen to the description of Judas according to the uh, New King James Version. And it says, And Judas, who also became a traitor. <coughs> Judas, who also became a traitor. What's involved? Uh, what, what do you have there, David? Uh, or, or Jane, what, what, what's it say there in your translation right at the end? It says just who became a traitor. Who became a traitor. So, um, all three finish with Judas Cariot, and they mention his betrayal. But only Luke says that he became a traitor. And um, this commentator says apparently he was faithful at the beginning. Iscariot probably means man of Kiriath, a town in Judea, according to Joshua 15.25, or Moab, Jeremiah 48.24. If so, Judas was the only non-Galilean of the twelve. Uh, Judas is a puzzle and an enigma, much more so than uh, I had uh, earlier held or believed. Uh, I have a I have a collection of books called Classic Sermons. There must be uh, three dozen of these on different topics. Classic Sermons on the Trinity, Classic Sermons on the Deity of Christ, Classic Sermons on the, on uh, this and that. A very interesting, uh, very interesting collection. And, um, and Warren Wearsby. How many of you have heard of Warren Wearsby? everybody. He's written and written. Well, Warren Wearsby put this series together and I've got in my hand here classic sermons on Judas Iscariot. And I read this from cover to cover because I was interested in it. And uh, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon has even got a, got a chapter in here. There's 11 chapters and out of the 11, at least half or, or about half don't say, they, they don't come to the place where they say that Judas was an unbeliever. They don't say that. They don't, the rest of them adamantly say he was an unbeliever. And uh, interesting, interesting. Uh, uh, but that, that's something for you to think about. And uh, I'm still thinking about it and looking at the text and so forth in relation to it. Yes, Patty? I can't hear you, Patty. The old King James doesn't say he was a traitor. Uh, the, the old King James? Says he was a traitor. In, in Luke? Yeah. Okay. Well, that does, that's not a good translation of the verb. That's not a good translation of the verb. That's why I, 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 
I prefer the, the New King James Version. Uh, now, I recognize uh, we're not King James only, are we? No. no. <laughs> well, we need to keep balanced. Uh, don't go off in any hobby horses or anything like that. Uh, look at the text. Look at all the references and uh, think about it. There's some, there's some things that just uh, are, are difficult to uh, understand in regard to uh, um, some of these issues and matters. Well, let's wrap this up with... Um, title of this is called The Consequences of a Drifting Heart. I, I would rather rename it Consequences of a Drifting Mind. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, now the Titanic sank in April 1912. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, a thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket, and it eventually sank. And 41 sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And while it was Osmond Berry, captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on charges, who was the captain of the ramming vessel, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled in the stand for five hours. And during cross-examination, cross it was learned, as the New York Times reported, that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrumentality was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. His steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was master of the Monroe. The faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise. The realization partly explains a heart-rendering picture recorded by the Times. Later, the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly sea seamen are a moving reminder of the consequences of misorientation. The human mind, like Captain Johnson's steering compass, has a propensity to drift. And that's why it's good for us to remember the Lord and his death each Sunday. Because we have a tendency to forget that all of our sins 
were born by him. Past, present, and future. And we need to be reminded of this as we come to the table. The slightest 2% drift can produce catastrophic consequences. Our minds need, need constant recalibration. We need to be set on a rightful trajectory. We need a su sufficient compass. And what is that compass? It's the Word of God. And we need the constant exposure to it. So, we need to align our ever so drifting minds to God's heart and recalibrate our minds to the sufficient magnetic compass of Holy Scripture, such as the Gospel of Luke for us, and as it has been this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness and mercy to us and for the sufficiency and the adequacy of your word and the challenges that at times it presents to us to stretch us and to uh, keep us um, properly. We bless and praise your name. We pray that we'll recalibrate our minds regularly so that we won't get off compass and stray, get off on tangents. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.